Hello, welcome to Solomon's Temple. We're gonna pick up on book two of the gay science because Frederick Nietzsche is just the best and I could just go on and on and on reciting and reflecting on what he has to say. He's calling into question these people that are hard realists. He calls them very sober, the sober people that arm themselves against the passions and the fantasies as if these people really do see things for what they are and that that is supposed to actually bring more light into the world as if that's supposed to actually even get you closer to the truth even as if you could really stand it down like that and there's a sort of arrogance to think that you have unveiled all of what reality is trying to transmit you're trying to think that there is this whole view on the matter that you're subscribing to like you're this beacon of where humanity is Nietzsche is calling to us saying that every human contribution my sober friends if you can you can forget your descent, your past, your training, all of your humanity, and your animality. There is no, quote, reality for us. Not for you either, my sober friends. We are not nearly as different as you think, and perhaps our goodwill to transcend intoxication is as respectable as your faith that you are altogether incapable of intoxication. Maybe calling into question those which view themselves as being totally sober, maybe this kind of point of view intoxicates you to life in a similar fashion that you know that you are intoxicated, maybe, as you are as this sober standing entity, and that you wish to transcend that kind of intoxication. Really, both of these projections about how to be in yourself and how you're supposed to feel about your attitudes, about your projection on things, your consciousness over it all. Do you take it for granted? Do you think of yourself better than how you really are? It's sort of this view of looking at the arrogant and scoffing and kind of laughing like the gesture and jester in the first in the first book, The Eternal Comedy. Nietzsche comes back to the whole moral will rather than the arbitrary will and starts attacking religion again. He says that, as everything formerly said about nature according to astronomers, geologists, physiologists, physicians, struck the moral man as an encroachment unto his precious possessions and hence as an attack and a shameless one at that even natural law sounded to him like a slander against god really he would have much preferred to see all of mechanics derived from acts of a moral will or an arbitrary will but since nobody was able to render him his this service he ignored nature and mechanics as best he could and lived in a dream and yet there is this attitude of seeing these people as somnambulists and dreamers and yet he is still poking at the idea that it is still good to be this way that you should walk away from the sober facts of what your ideas are stating that they aren't too intoxicating but in the end they are that maybe that's kind of the giggle point is you can move away or move towards whatever you want you're still at that intoxication level thinking that you are clear of it and that maybe moving away from intoxication and staying thoroughly within it is really the same point of view only from different areas I don't know if it makes sense, but he's saying let's ascend into these higher mountaintops, but view them as planes, view them as these, you know, just the status quo of your own personal existence, rather than viewing them as this lower thing. It is a higher thing, it's just, but it just appears to be the same as it ever was, I suppose. So what's the deal? Let's have a good time. Let's be artists and make our realities plain to see, but let's keep climbing. The very next section is so interesting. It's titled Women and Their Action at a Distance. Interesting, I am dealing with a woman that is acting at a distance right now. <laughs> okay, well, we ran across this right on time then. He's sort of talk, talking and musing about, yeah, we have all of our plans and we are currently stumbling around 
with this force and that force and this person here, this activity, and there's sort of this um, presentness and this driven mentality. And it's complicated, and life can be a hellishly intense labyrinth. But he's sort of saying that there's a lot more calm and beauty when you put yourself away and depart from yourself, when you isolate from yourself. He talks about going out on like a sailboat, that your sailboat is taking you over this big, dark, scary body of water full of complicated danger, but you are just moving over existence. You're just floating over it and all these different ghosts and phantasms. You're just surfing over all of these scary things. You're surfing over your plans and your projects. And that he thinks that there's a better self that dwells among women and that these quiet regions, even the loudest surf, turns into deathly quiet, and life itself into a dream about life. He sums like the whole thing up at the end by saying, the magic and the most powerful effect of women is, in philosophical language, action at a distance. But this requires, first of all, and above all, distance. Kind of like the hermit, going away like Virgo, the essence of feminine energy. You go far away, but you go far within your mind. And of course, followed is this little shtick on motherhood that a mother is compared to like an artist's love for their work, complete satisfaction for what they produce, what they produced out of themselves, like birthing, the birthing of creation, creating creation itself is, it's just this replication of this higher kind of artistry, I suppose, a lot more passionate and and real and, and tactile and whole, I suppose. But he says that uh, being pregnant makes you more patient, more kind, more timid, and more pleased to submit. And just so does spiritual pregnancy produce the character of the contemplative type, which is closely related to the feminine character. It consists of male mothers. So for a man to realize more readily that they're androgynous would bring them to a greater capacity for the inward understanding, for the spiritual capacity, and maybe the union of creative expression or going within and getting out what there is and revealing that kind of inward beauty. He says that animals sort of look at the female as this productive thing, like this uh, thing to be getting gotten used to rather than existing alongside them and and truly finding satisfaction in what the offspring are desiring so men do not have that natural capacity but for for humans for human sake it's the male's spiritual pregnancy that brings them closer and closer to what comes naturally to the feminine and becoming involved and in union with what that energy is, is what, what gives a real kind of paternal love. Or maybe in essence, paternal love is the love for the fact that they did something, that they contributed something rather than really appreciate it. The next section is the greatest danger. Now, there is inherent in lots of men to want to always be within a majority of what is considered rational as a matter of pride and obligation, or even virtue, and that these sort of phantasms and debaucheries of thought don't make you a friend to, quote, a healthy common sense, and that they feel embarrassed or might be excluded to even imbibe on some of this madness. It's these people that are exceptions that we hear of when they utter the things they utter and behave the ways they do. They are the danger. They are the exception and the danger. They're much faster. They move faster. They have faster minds. There's a slow march that goes on with the majority, but it's much quicker as you get out to the fringes. Of course, if you're out on those fringes, you become nauseous of this slow-moving, massive tempo of certainty and pure reason. 
He says at the end that the exception should never become the rule, but there may be positive things said about the exceptions, but there is certainly a danger in these exceptions becoming the rule. That's why there's always things on the periphery and on the edge. And there will never be this massive revolution and thought because the tempo is slow and it stays within its means and it is always conservative. It's like the most stable thing. When you have these wild exceptions, it's always viewed as dangerous. If it's not a status quo, it can be viewed as dangerous. The next section is, what should win our gratitude? He goes into the idea of the theater. Theater is taking elements and things within ourselves, the experiences, and it teaches us to esteem certain characters, and it teaches us to view ourselves as heroes, but from a distance, in a more, I guess, simplified way, but we are watching ourselves from a distance, like what women do, that spiritual pregnancy. These per perspectives, uh, these spellbound ideas of ourselves acting out, we can sort of reveal what they are uh, in a sort of detached mode at a distance. And then in a way, uh, we could see how vulgar things really appear when they're presented. In the end, this process of theater helps us magnify in what we are dealing with is not a vast reality, but is only a symptom or detail within it. He next sort of goes into this analysis or view on some of his, uh, Nietzsche's favorite philosophers, including Schopenhauer. And Schopenhauer, of course, hates Jews. <laughs> but there's sort of like this, um, the idea with Schopenhauer is like, there is this, when you are looking into what you're examining, even if it's just an object, you in essence become this, absorbed into this object, and you are, and you are whatever you're dealing with, whatever mental landscape you're dealing with with the object you're a part of its multiplicity but you become whatever part you're examining you essentially become absorbed into things and he argues that yes you are that thing you are like everything you are like everything else and he really reduce he has this philosophy of reducing like, you know, there is no individual lion that stands out in and of itself. All lions are at bottom, only one lion, and that plurality of the individuals is just an appearance. He also views the intellect as sort of this instrumentality and efficiency towards some end that isn't unique at all. There will always be these a priori effects. By definition, they'll always make sense of themselves because you become sort of your definitions that you proceed with and that there's an unfreedom of the will. And I could sort of see that. Are we all one? It seems like that's kind of the thing. Is like, are we all one? Or is there any differentiation? But at bottom, what are you definitively, like with your language structure, a lion is a lion. A person is a per still a person. To what extent you get to call it that or to what extent you get to call the universality of things or being in the world or what it means to be a part of something as a whole or as a part or anything like this, being distinct from anything else. There's like this distinction between you can't break it all down, but you're still a part of the whole of everything. And then you can break it down into its bits and become those things and you sort of individualize out the whole of everything and you are these bits that you're examining and you become them sort of but in the end you're not individuating you're still a part of the whole <laughs> so i don't know that's cool i like that sort of this carving out of existence looking into this sort of idea of individuality and whether or not you can totally have it, is this quote by Wagner, Richard Wagner, in Beirut. Quote, the passion is better than stoicism and hypocrisy, that being honest and evil is still better than losing oneself to the morality of tradition, that a free human being can be good as well as evil, 
but that the unfree human being is a blemish upon nature and has no share in any heavenly or earthly comfort. Finally, that everyone who wishes to become free must become free through his own endeavor, and that freedom does not fall into any man's lap as a miraculous gift. Freedom, in essence, is the ability to unleash your own will overall. And do you own the will? Never. But can you carve out your reality? Yes, you can. You carve and view your reality. You make of it. You discover. You will. You move. You transport yourself into whatever place you are. And of course, I think there is this overall structure and timing of everything that exists that happens void of yourself. It is going on as this one will, but it is, is collective, but is still individualized and we're a part of it. But as you go, you you put out your will and then in that way you go into the collective and then it sort of makes you so you you aren't making yourself but you're you're still this um carved out self that is made as a result of this collective that is going on i don't know if that makes sense but basically you, you sort of have a destiny giving who you are and it goes along and then you sort of carve out where it is you are and you will that into being i suppose Last section is our ultimate gratitude to art, that the sciences and the demands that we put on ourselves in finding out the answers, and that if we don't have the proper how or knowledge over something, the consequences can be severe, and that at bottom we happen to be relatively serious about everything. But overall, the unfinished awareness, the appearance of everything that there is unveiled, and the unfinished work, the unfinished poem is we should not take ourselves too seriously and that we should deal with the nausea of truth and that all our thirsts and passions for knowledge we need to find pleasure in the fact that this is still born out of error and that there needs to be he mentions an exuberant floating dancing mocking childish and blissful art lest we lose the freedom above things that our ideal demands of us it would mean to relapse for us with our irritable honesty, to get involved entirely in morality and for the sake of the over-severe demands that we make on ourselves in these matters to become virtuous monsters and scarecrows. So to be able to unstiffen and, and release the anxiety of the error of being alive, that we need to be able to float above this and be able to play. And Nietzsche makes it clear that it's okay to be the fool. Release your shame. And if you're ashamed, you don't yet belong among us. Shame is not involved in the gay science. Okay, that's it for another one. Thank you for tuning in. I'll see you next time.